In the 1930s, Australia faced a crisis with the growing emu population destroying its farmland. They tried everything, and nothing appeared to work. So they brought in the military. What happens when you apply the rules of war to a group of animals? Find out today on Footnoting History. Welcome to Footnoting History. I am your host, Leslie Skousen, and today we will explore the relationship between humans and animals, dependence and revenge, warfare and motivation. Our location, Australia. The time, the 1930s. The goal, figuring out how to live side by side with enormous flightless birds similar to an ostrich who have the strength of kangaroos and the cunning of lions hunting their prey. These emu became adept at dodging farmer attempts to keep them out of the fields of crops. What followed was an embarrassment of hubris and the Australian government. Relationships between animals and humans have been fraught with complexity since before recorded history. On the one hand, their labor, food, and companionship is vital to our success in forming civilization. On the other hand, animals are living beings with motivations all their own. In Herman Melville's story of Moby Dick, Captain Ahab spends his life chasing the one white whale that bit off his leg during a previous journey. Why a man who survived a whale attack wouldn't simply be grateful is beyond me, but for Captain Ahab, the loss of his leg was a great insult that needed to be avenged. He treated the whale, Moby Dick, as a great personal enemy, a motivated adversary upon whom a revenge must be taken. Lisa Simpson once summarized the purpose of Moby Dick as the important lesson that we cannot take revenge on animals. Revenge is a social motivation with a human context. Of course, her father Homer tells her that the true lesson of Moby Dick is to be yourself. But Lisa is absolutely right. This lesson would have been well learned by the people of Australia struggling against the emu population in the 1930s. The trouble began, as with so much else in the 20th century, with the Great Depression. The collapse of the American stock market in 1929 sent shockwaves around the world, disrupting production, trade, company values, and access to resources and tax revenues. In Europe, it contributed to the tension preceding the Second World War. In Japan, the Depression disrupted their Industrial Revolution and helped lead to the invasion of neighboring countries. In Australia, farmers began to struggle with the balance between harvesting their plants on Mother Nature's schedule while delivering food to the right cities and ports on time. Wheat prices plummeted, along with wages, lost jobs, and suspension of factory work. With very small margins, the farmers had little to gain and everything to lose with minor disruption from either natural or economic forces. In the previous two decades, new areas of Australia had been converted to farmland. Soldiers returning from World War I were offered terrific deals on parcels of land in the Australian bush that could be converted to farmland. The arrival of the Great Depression soon put these veterans and their farming families on a new challenge from the government to increase the production of wheat so that Australia would not need to rely on the international markets to feed its growing population. Parliament passed legislation and extended promises of vast subsidies should the farmers increase their wheat crop. In theory, this would create a situation where Australia could insulate itself somewhat from the growing economic crisis abroad. However, subsidies require money, and the Australian government did not have money. By 1932, farmers were teetering on the edge, with investment costs rising to double their wheat output 
and complexities of the global market preventing a clear method for harvesting and distributing their crops to ports and cities in a timely manner, the farmers of West Australia soon faced a new challenge, the migratory patterns of the emu. So the emu, it's a large flightless bird similar to an ostrich or my personal favorite large bird, the dinosaur-style cassowary. They are fascinating creatures able to grow up to six feet or two meters and weigh about 150 pounds. They are incredibly fast considering their size. They run up to 50 kilometers in an hour. This is going to be an important part of this story, so keep that speed in mind. They can run about as fast as a car driving down a suburban road. These birds maintain their weight by eating a simple diet of fruits, seeds, plants, shoots, and some insects. One fun fact about emus is that they locate perfectly sized small stones and then swallow them so that they stay in their gizzards to help grind up harder seeds or roughage. It's kind of cool. These are migratory animals, traveling in large groups of up to 20,000 altogether, subdivided into smaller teams that forage for food throughout the day. The smaller groups have a clear leader who looks out for potential danger while the others feast and drink water. This leader keeps the smaller groups safe while their powerful legs allow them to scatter quickly in the face of danger. Finally, the small nature of their diets and the large requirements of water mean that farmland was the perfect discovery for these birds. When Europeans arrived in Australia, they were spellbound by the enormous birds. Accordingly, whole subspecies were wiped out to satisfy the bloodthirsty curiosity of newly arriving European settlers. The population of the birds went from well over 2 million down to just 20,000 before the government of Australia passed an act to protect them in 1922. By the time of our story 10 years later, the birds had bounced back to a healthy population. They were thrilled to find ready streams along enormous tracts of wheat fields with food and drink aplenty and essentially no predators in sight. So approximately 20,000 emus began targeting the newly cleared farmland in the late 1920s and early 1930s. The wheat fields were a perfect height for their eating, and farmers, pressed by economic hardship and government pressure to expand their production, did whatever they could to fight them off. Farmers attempted to build fences, but the birds were too powerful to hold back. They hired hands to stay up all night long, shooting at whatever birds came near the crops. The birds were fast and darted back and forth, making a single shot nearly impossible to land one bird among a group of 20 or 30. The presence of these powerful emus exacerbated another problem, rabbits. Rabbits had once been imported as a source of food for European colonists. These small creatures escaped and soon overpopulated as an invasive species. This story was captured beautifully in a movie called The Rabbit-Proof Fence, Emus were able to punch holes through the fencing, which allowed not only the emus to break into field enclosures, but also to bring rabbits along with them. Soon, rabbits were destroying the roots of the plants while emus ate the tops. Between the emus and the rabbits, stalks of majestic wheat, six feet tall, were reduced to little more than nubs along the ground. Clearly, something had to be done. The first step was to ask Parliament to change the law of protection over emus so killing them was legal again. Parliament did this in 1930, and the large birds were transformed into the category of vermin, along with rats and dingoes. The next step was to figure out a method of extermination, or at least to thin the population to reduce their effects of roaming herds. Most of these farmers were themselves ex-soldiers from World War I, trained with machine guns. 
They worked hard to shoot one at a time, but were unable to make a dent in the tens of thousands of enormous birds relentlessly attacking their fields. And so, they began requesting a delivery of machine guns to improve their chances against those animals. Again, Parliament delivered. James Mitchell, the premier of Western Australia, advocated heavily for the military intervention as the Australian army declared war on the emu scourge. And so the war began. In November of 1932, soldiers were deployed to the Greater Perth area in order to locate herds of emu and dispatch them as cleanly as possible. They were armed with a parcel of machine guns, 10,000 rounds of ammunition, and a deployment of troops to aid the experienced veteran farmers. On the 2nd of November, a small group of 50 emu were located within a wheat field. They had broken the fence down and were eating well. The soldiers crept up and established their position. Once ready, they took aim and fired. Emu scattered rapidly, running in all directions and faster than the machine guns could follow them. In spite of some birds being shot at point-blank range, the machine guns were useless in hitting their target. Perhaps some birds were hit, but when the dust cleared, all 50 birds had escaped and no remains of a successful kill could be found. Dejected but undeterred, the soldiers carried on. A few days later, they located a group of over 100 emus clustered together. Again, they took their stance and set up their machine guns. Despite being at close range, the emus heard them and scattered once again. Emu formation was very clever, with five emus eating at once while another stood guard and raised the alarm at the first sign of danger. The emus were highly disciplined, perhaps even more so than the trained Australian army. The formation of scatter was calculated to produce chaos and not merely escape. Some emus ran straight at the machine guns, while others made a crisscross pattern to evade bullets and confuse the battalion. With more poor results, the army took a step back to regroup. One recruit commented to the media, the emus have proved that they are not so stupid as they are usually considered to be. Each mob has its leader, always an enormous black-plumed bird, standing fully six foot high, who keeps watch while his fellows busy themselves with the wheat. At the first suspicious sign, he gives the signal, and dozens of heads stretch up out of the crop. A few birds will take flight, starting a headlong stampede from the scrub, the leader always remaining until his followers have reached safety. Clearly, men and machine guns were insufficient. They needed more technology to outwit this formidable enemy. And so the Australian Parliament sent them a truck, so they could mount their weapons and run with the birds, perhaps improving the overall effect. On the third day of engagement, November 8th, they were able to use the truck and the machine gun mount. However, this approach had the added negative effect of mixing a moving target with a bumpy ride. The approach increased the challenges to human accuracy and further allowed emu to escape by darting and fleeing in their organized patterns. Chaos reigned. One emu even came straight at the truck with the machine gun unable to hit it as it moved closer and closer until the bird's very neck got stuck in the steering wheel. Another day, humans have lost. By this point, the military deployment had used up 25% of their allotted ammunition. Only 100 birds had been killed across more than 1,000 encountered, and the wheat fields were still being destroyed day by day. The media had a field day. Imagine the headlines, soldiers defeated by bird army. The Australian Parliament continued to discuss the issue. Major G.P.W. Meredith reported that 
If only we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face an army, any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. The human army was losing badly. Yet emu kept coming and farmers were in crisis. They had to try again. And Parliament had to protect the food of its people amidst the global crisis of the Great Depression. And so they tried a fourth day of the campaign. On the 12th of November, armed now with more soldiers, more guns, and more ammunition, the Australian army finally had a good day. It took 10,000 bullets, but they were able to take down 986 birds. No matter the number of men, of guns, of trucks, there's a pattern emerging for every 10 bullets shot at an emu, even at point-blank range. Only one hit a bird fatally. For all that investment, they were only able to sustain killing about 100 birds a week, despite continuous attempts of engagement. It was getting expensive and serious. The military could not continue to wage an expensive war against animals and experience this level of defeat. The wartime tactics were ineffective. The army conceded to their honorable enemy, and the local government decided on a different approach. Instead of a machine gun scatter, they offered a bounty— allowing individual hunters to come in, stalk, kill, and then claim a prize bird by bird. This at least disrupted the wheat consumption more successfully than the military approach. The emu groups would continue to be a plague for West Australian farmers. Such frontiersmen requested additional military assistance to combat the birds in 1934, 1943, and again in 1948. However, by then, Parliament had learned their lesson— you cannot take revenge on an animal as Captain Ahab once attempted on his white whale in Moby Dick. You cannot apply the rules of war to groups of birds. The machine gun approach may have been successful in the trenches of World War I, but they were no match against a flock of emu. The Great Depression waned, the farmers would be left on their own, and the emu would emerge once again, a specially protected group. Today, these beautiful, smart, organized birds are protected once again, and as Australia faces the news that their precious koalas have been declared functionally extinct due to a mixture of human expansion and a severe epidemic of koala chlamydia, the Australian government has gone to great lengths to improve their protection of animals native to their continent. Today, the Australian military is more likely to be asked to protect animals than to declare war on them. Perhaps this is a natural response to major changes in the environment in light of climate change or... Perhaps it is due to the sting of the memory of the time when Australia declared war on flightless birds and lost. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.